Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Michael Rosen is a writer, poet and broadcaster who has been performing for children since the 1970s. A former children's laureate, he has collaborated on more than 150 books of stories, jokes and poetry. There is not a week that passes where I don't read Little Rabbit Fufu or We're Going on a Bear Hunt to my three-year-old. And Michael's performance of the poem Chocolate Cake on his YouTube channel single-handedly got my family through lockdown. His expert comic timing makes my kids collapse and roll around the carpet shrieking with laughter. Every time homeschooling got too much during the first lockdown, we would watch it. So we watched it a lot. In March 2020, Michael started coughing, experiencing flu symptoms and feeling like he couldn't catch his breath. On the advice of a friend and GP, Michael's wife Emma rushed him to the Whittington Hospital in North London, where it became clear he had COVID-19 and was put into an induced coma in intensive care for 48 days. His new book, Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS, features letters written to him by the medical staff who cared for him. Michael has compared this care to the kind of fierce devotion and love a parent gives to their sick child. This book sees Michael turn detective as he tries to piece together what happened to him during the lost coma months of April and May and during his weeks in a rehabilitation hospital where he learnt to stand up and walk again. It's a book about life and death, but it's also about love. And the reason I picked page 163 was because Emma's love for Michael shines throughout the whole book. Michael Rosen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Abby. How are you today? Yeah, very good, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, persistent symptoms, if you like. I don't see very well with my left eye. I don't really hear with my left ear. I have numb toes and I'm a bit weak and a bit breathless. But um, apart from that, I'm, I'm okay. Good. Do you get used to those kind of symptoms? Do you sort of assimilate that into your new body, as it were? Or is it just good days and bad days? Um, I think I just have to. There are some days that aren't as good as others when I do feel weaker. Yes, it, it assimilates quite a good good word, actually, because it's, it's, you have to find a way of assimilating or accommodating or a mixture of both. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If you're happy to read page 163 now, that would be great. The consultant tells me that Emma did it. They tried to wake me up. She had told them what music I liked. She sent them in pictures of the family. I opened my eyes, but they weren't sure I could see. And I waved my arms about as if I was agitated about something. But I wasn't awake. They didn't know if I would wake up. He told me they arranged a meeting. I was wheeled out. Emma came in. She talked to me. She squeezed my hand. She played me messages from the children. Emma has told me this, I think. But then he says we wheeled you into the lift and you were transformed. You were awake and you understood what was going on. That was the breakthrough moment. 
I am washed over with knowing that the things she said and did reached into a mind that was frozen and untrapped it. She freed me. So you're describing on that page the first time you saw Emma after the coma, is that right? You, you didn't see her before, before this moment? Now, my problem is, is of course, I, I don't remember any of this. The effect of the drugs they give you is that uh, you're, you don't know anything at all. Obviously, it's going on while you're actually in the coma. And then there's a period where you're coming out of the coma. And I don't really remember any of that. I mean, my very first memories, I think, are when I'm, what they say, on the ward, because I was moved from the intensive care ward to an ordinary ward. In fact, it was a geriatric ward, but um, <laughs> I won't go into that. Uh, it's called Merrick Ward. And um, when I was there, I started to say and do things that I now remember. But this particular scene I don't remember. I think it's possible, I'm not sure now, whether Emma's told me that she did come in once before, but of course we weren't allowed contact because of COVID restrictions. So it was a rather special and strange encounter because I was wheeled out onto what's called the atrium at the Whittington Hospital, which is basically the landing outside the lifts, the atrium on the fourth floor. And so we met in this very non-medical surroundings in fact, it's, you see out over London because it's, it's where supposedly Dick Whittington <laughs> turned again, you know. So it was Michael Rosen turn again, London, you know. Um, <laughs> but I have no memory of it. So all I know are Emma's account and the consultant's account of, uh, of actually what happened. And does Emma tell you that she has a memory of seeing some kind of understanding flash across your face? I mean, th- these arms waving about suggests something yeah she says that i i wasn't very reactive apart from when she played me um the recordings on the phone of uh, the family particularly our youngest um that i had been fairly kind of limp and mute um but when i heard the recordings i say particularly of our youngest I did show an interest. Literally, when the lift doors closed and Emma had said goodbye, uh, the consultant and the nurses were talking to me and I apparently talked back at them. Again, I have no no memory of this at all, but uh, uh, I talked back and apparently couldn't be stopped, Um, which is a big surprise, of course, to the whole family, you know, that I couldn't stop talking. I'd never heard of that before. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that was, I mean, the other word he used was game changer. I've called it the breakthrough moment in that piece of writing there, but he also called it a game changer. I don't know why I didn't put that in the writing, but anyway, that's what he also called it. What's your understanding of how family, music, messages from loved ones. How does it, as you say, kind of free free a person? So you were trapped in there, but it, it managed to get deep inside in some way. I mean, it's sort of hard to talk about because I know you don't remember this, but what did the consultant explain? Have they seen this before with people? Yes. I mean, if you talk to people who've been in car accidents, been knocked out, they know that... Um, if you put people under these drugs, is that mostly people come round eventually, but some don't. We know of people who've been in comas for, for years even. And they will try anything and everything. It's, it's almost as if they're reaching into a black bag and trying to find some trigger that will turn this person back on. And they have these chemicals that they put into us 
and they stop giving us the chemicals and they have other chemicals that they try to wake us up and they can also poke us and play us music and, and so on. So they do know that the advantage of family is that it does seem to waken a memory in the person that then triggers the brain back into action. I don't think anybody knows exactly what it is that does it, but there seems to be that if you can, as it were, pluck the right string, I mean, I'm just using metaphors here, aren't I? Just pluck the right string, play the right note, that this will trigger a response. And whatever it is that's holding the person in that state of unconsciousness, and it is no longer the drugs because they've turned them off. So if it isn't the drugs that's holding them in there, there must be some kind of, what can we imagine, connections that aren't happening if you think of it in terms of an electric current, which again is a metaphor in itself, that somehow or other that current is then switched on and the person becomes conscious. And yet visibly at that stage when I was talking, uh, sorry, when Emma was talking to me, I was conscious in that my eyes were open, I was moving and was saying things in the lift, but at another level, not really conscious. So there's obviously, we have these two words, conscious and unconscious, but actually, there are states of some kind of middle consciousness that's between the two that we don't have a word for. And how do you process what Emma did? What well, It's huge if she was the one that pulled you out of that, that space between the conscious and the unconscious. It's yes, you've said it. It's overwhelming. No, you, you've said it. I mean, because... I, I, what can you say? Here is this person that you live with, you love, that loves you, and they've done that thing that's enabled you to be unfrozen. I mean, I've used the word frozen. Uh, another thing I've called it is the land of the dead, which is sort of a joke, referring to Odysseus, really, because Odysseus was able to go to the land of the dead and get out again. And I sort of feel that, in a way, I did the same. I, I, I got out, but it wasn't really me who got out. Emma kind of hauled me out. And you have to say, you have to credit a little bit to the doctors, who, to, to <laughs> Hugh Montgomery, because it was his idea to bring Emma in, because they were getting worried in his own terms that I was brain dead, because what I was doing was staring into the middle distance with a dilated pupil. So he thought that my brain had been damaged. Um, he says this on the film, 2020, The Story of Us, and I can see myself on the film staring at him while he's talking to me. And they were worried that I was going to be kind of locked in there. I mean, the brain is a very mysterious territory, you know, whatever, again, analogies and metaphors we use for it, like, you know, the depths of the Pacific Ocean or, you know, there's a lot of energy going on there and it's, it's our consciousness, it's our mind. And we think we know it because, you know, you're talking to me and I'm talking to you. But really, there's a whole territory that's, that's unknown. So it is overwhelming to me that Emma somehow or other reached into it and by her being there and holding my hand and playing me these recordings that that was a trigger it, it just seems quite magical to me it's I mean I'm not somebody who believes in magic but it does feel magical it does feel in its own way quite mystical because there isn't a full scientific explanation for it we know it happens so we've got that kind of empirical evidence but we don't actually know why it happens and did Emma react in the way you would have expected? Because I don't think anyone 
can imagine walking in those shoes. We we can imagine a loved one being sick, but you would visit them. You'd visit them as much as possible. This idea that the virus stopped loved ones seeing, you know, the people in hospital is what's so shocking and cruel about it. But uh, that bit where in the book where your friend Katie, the, the GP who urged Emma to take you to hospital and not wait for an ambulance, that bit where she says, throughout all the time in hospital, I was constantly impressed by Emma's quiet courage and strength and her fierce protectiveness and love for you. She was always making sure that you got the best possible care and that your dignity and privacy were protected. And then she goes on to say, she showed me what quiet, real, enduring love means and how vitally important it is in these difficult times. Yes, um, that's Katie's seen it from the outside. Yes, Emma, I've, I keep saying to her, and she sort of bats me away in a way, is how strong she was. That, that uh, And I, as we often do, we compare, when you see somebody behaving in a certain kind of way, you compare it to yourself. And I just think, if I had been sitting alone, albeit with our kids, but sitting uh, with no adult company in the house with her down the road in the hospital for 40 days, 45 days, not knowing one way or the other whether your spouse, your your loved one would live or die minute by minute because people were literally dying by the minute in those wards because they would be conscious, awake, sitting there. And because of the nature of COVID, because it creates blood clots and other things, that people could look fine and then just go any second. And so every time the phone rings or every time you ring the hospital, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And there's a relentlessness about 40 days. I mean, it does, <laughs> coincidentally, of course, it's got this um, biblical thing. I mean, mm. at least two of the great tests in the Bible, Noah and Jesus, are for 40 days. So there must be something or other symbolic <laughs> about it. Um, but that Emma endured that. And if I mention it, she sort of brushes me to one side as if, well, it's kind of what you do sort of thing. Whereas all I can ever think when I flip it and think about it egotistically for a moment, I'd have been running about. I know I would. I would have run about and bored people's pants off talking about it and sitting there glumly and perhaps overbearingly demanding attention in order for me to kind of cope. But she didn't seem to have done that. So it's it's quite... Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm finding it difficult to find the words here. Um, baffling at the same time, wonderful. So, yeah, I can't fully understand it from the inside. Amazing. I can imagine she bats it away. I mean, quite hard, a hard thing to talk about. Um. Yes, I think very strong, people who are very strong emotionally, sometimes themselves might not know how it is that they are. They Because... I've seen this, people talking about war and refugees and things like this, is that there's a sense that life is what is dealt to you and your job in life is to pick up the cards and carry on. It isn't to mourn it and moan about it and complain about it and go keep going back over it, but more a kind of certain logicality. I think Bertolt Brecht tried to describe this in Mother Courage, uh, a sense that your job in life, as I say, is to pick up the cards and carry on playing, not to 
say I've got the wrong cards, I can't go on, I can't go on playing this game if I'm using this analogy of card playing. But you just do it because there, there isn't anything else. It's a particular kind of existentialism that accepts that's what life is. It's not that there's some other, you can somehow or other get out of the game and go and be in another game. That's the, that is life. Life is that game. Mm. And has that acceptance of the, these cards you have dealt, has, has it changed you, do you think? Yeah, I think it's changed me um, a variety of ways. I have to accept or own my own frailty. I, I must make efforts not to, as it were, dump my frailty onto others, whether that's Emma or whether that's anybody. Um, you have to take ownership of it, control it, um, and deal with it. You know, so if so, I had a booster jab the other day, and um, my reaction was quite bad, actually. Well, I had to deal with that. It, it wasn't somehow or other as if <laughs> it belonged to someone else, or I could blame somebody else. You need the booster jab. I had the booster jab. So you have to go through a little calculation to say, well, own it. And maybe it hit me a little bit harder because of whatever my health experience was over the last couple of years, uh, whatever the reason, but I had to own it. And that, that sort of applies to everything. It's like the eye, the wonky eye that doesn't work and the ear that doesn't work. It's not as if I could replace it or do anything about it. So you have to say, well, that's it. So I am who I am. And you have to keep reminding yourself of that and saying it quietly to yourself, not to be, not to dump it on other people. So that's one thing. And then there's another thing that I think I, I knew, but I'm just repeating to myself, which is that if you don't believe in the afterlife, then the, the opposite of that is you totally accept this is the life and that's all that there is. So whatever it is, you have to make the best of it because if you keep making the worst of it, there isn't anywhere else to go. I mean, somebody once asked me whether I was an optimist and a pessimist and I said, well, I'm <laughs> I'm an optimist because if you're a pessimist, you're being mournful and pessimistic and then you die. So it was kind of <laughs> wasted. <laughs> so there, there's this basic hard truth, if you, if you don't believe in an afterlife, that this is the only life you've got. So then it seems to me to follow on from that, that you have to make the best of it. And one way that I try to make the best of it is to make sure that you do one thing, that I do one thing in a day, at least one thing, it might be more, um, that you feel good about, that you can feel glad about, because there might be all sorts of things in the day that might be a bit ropey. But mm. if you do one thing that's good enough, then you can focus on it and use it somehow as a, as a reason for uh, this life being a good life. Um, so that's, that's how I, I try to think. And I think I do that more consciously and more in a more focused way than maybe I did in the past. Mm, I like that one one good thing it's true you can have a terrible day but there's there's some nestling in there somewhere was one was one good thing even if it was just a great cup of tea yeah that, exactly no no it can be very small and also you have to do it you have to be the agent I mean maybe somebody will hand you something nice which is great but I didn't mean that really it was more that it's something where you're the agent the actor you're the person who actually does it um and then as you doze off, then you can think about that and you can think, yeah, look, look, I, I did that. I 
put one word under another and uh, called it a poem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe another one, made it three words. So, yes, that's, that's the sort of thing. Or it might even be that um, I bought two pieces of strudel from the Jewish deli at the end of the road. I felt very proud about that. I don't know why, but it's, it's not a huge thing to do. But I spotted the strudels and bought them. Yeah, that was a big thing. <laughs> and it's a, a fine line, isn't it? Because we're sort of told now more and more to not bottle up our feelings. You know, where do they go if we just keep them inside? Mm. But as you said, if you keep dumping, um, if you keep dumping that kind of feeling of anger you might feel about, I don't know, your reaction to the booster on other people, it's it's not, I guess, particularly positive or or easy to live with. Yes, you are difficult. demanding. You're kind of demanding that they own it for you. You're, I mean, the dump is a very, is a very good word because it suggests that you take it off your shoulders and dump it onto somebody else's. Then you're free of the load and they've got it. And, um, well, it just ain't fair, really. I mean, if you can do it in an equal way, you dump on me and I'll dump on you. Well, then you're both carrying equal loads. But if it's all one way which it can be very easily if you've been in this situation because I'm the only one who's ill, I'm the only one this has happened to, you know, sorry, I haven't got time to consider anything that you've been going through. That, that's the sort of thing that you have to watch out for. The messages that Emma recorded and then playlists she gave to the nurses. Obviously, in this moment when you're meeting in that atrium, you, you don't remember hearing them so much, but do you ever listen to them now or do you remember listening to them later on in your recovery? And do you feel comfortable sort of talking about what the music was and uh, what the messages said? Uh, we have talked about it several times actually it's quite funny Emma's tried to find them on her phone and she hasn't been able to find them apart from don't laugh but the former Arsenal defender Per Mertesacker a German player played for Arsenal and is now I think the youth coach mm. uh, he sent me a message and I think Emma played his message and she's shown me since and so there's <laughs> Per Mertesacker sitting there on her phone saying all of us at Arsenal are very much hoping that you get better, Michael. And it's just so lovely. I mean, you know, having watched this guy play. Amazing. Um, so it wasn't was your called, kids at all. It wasn't your kids. It, <laughs> it was clearly Per Mertesacker, yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I feel very fond of Per Mertesacker. And uh, he, he had a particular way of playing and so on. And so there he is on Emma's phone oh, saying, amazing. you know, we wish you all of us here at Arsenal are wishing you the very best. And it's it's lovely. But the music, and also she recorded, uh, played a Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, which is a lovely play, the radio play, actually, that me, me and Emma like very much indeed. And I do have a memory of saying to somebody at some point, and I don't know when, trying to say to them how wonderful I thought Under Milkwood was. I mean, you know, you can think of mad conversations in hospitals, but... Can you imagine turning to somebody who you have no idea and going, you know, this is really good. Under Milkwood, it's just amazing. You know, the guy next to me must have, I don't know, you know, it, it, doubt whether he was thinking about Under Milkwood. But anyway. Uh, have, so you I had any, ha have you had any conversations with anyone you were in hospital with since? Uh, yes, just uh, via somebody else. Yes. Um, well, I've had with other patients. Um, I have uh, sort of secondhand conversations with 
the guy who, in the rehabilitation hospital, it's in the book, when uh, the nurse comes past him and says, uh, Peter, your urine is dark. And he said, the times are dark. Um, well, that was Peter. And <laughs> Is he the one who didn't like the food either? Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. They, they say to him, you know, it's such and such today. And he said, well, it makes no difference. It all tastes the same. Anyway, dear Peter, um, <laughs> yeah, we had some nice chats before he went. And um, I've been in touch with him via his daughter. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm in touch with any of the other patients, but I am in touch with Hugh, the consultant who's in the piece that you asked me to read. Um, in fact, we're doing a double act at the House of Commons coming up soon. So oh, I've been wow. in contact with Hugh quite a bit. And I did bump into Margie. Who is Margie? Margie is one of the nurses. You mentioned that uh, some of the health workers are in my book and they're incredible letters while I'm in the coma. Well, one of them is Margie. And I was sitting on a bench with you uh, for this film, 2020, The Story of Us. And we were filming and I was talking to him. And suddenly a person went past and then came back and went, no, are you Michael Rosen? And I went, yes. And she said, I, I was in your intensive care ward. I was, I was yeah. And Hugh immediately knew her because he was the consultant, but I didn't. And she said, you're, you're, you're alive or something like that. And I said, yes, um, though possibly not. I don't, you know, maybe I'm a ghost or maybe I'm a Jewish ghost, a dibuk, <laughs> as it's called. I'm the dibuk of Muswell Hill, you know. But anyway, we had a little conversation and she was very moved to see that I was sitting up and alive and talking because you've got to remember that in that ward, 58% of us were dying. So... In some respects, I sort of feel like I'm a, in a minority survivor in those circumstances. And she was so, uh, clearly moved. And then I was moved that she was moved because that she cared. I mean, this is, this is my problem, as it were, is that you mentioned it at the beginning, that I have to keep trying to figure out why or how these people care that you survive and live. You know, our whole culture you know sentimentalizes this on the one hand but meanwhile is constantly showing us images of uncaringness whether that's towards refugees towards old people towards vulnerable people towards disabled people mm. uh, through all the structures of racism and sexism and so on a lot of this is about not caring mm. and then in the midst of this I have experienced the most incredible care that's what you alluded to. So when I was face-to-face -face with Margie, someone who had no idea before I was in the hospital who I was or whatever, and I, I can see looking at her, she's a person of colour, that her origins are uh, out, you know, from, from abroad and so on. And somehow or other, this awful illness has brought me and Margie together in this public hospital, and she is glad that I'm alive. And I'm thinking, wow, I thought that was my job. I'm glad that I'm alive. But, you know, why is a stranger glad that I'm alive? And indeed has helped me be alive. And so all that sort of went into that moment. And I got a bit overwhelmed, I think. It's, it was caught on film as, I, as that sort of flashed through my mind. Oh, I'm so glad you got to see Margie again, and that she just was walking by. The nurses mentioned the music as well. Seemed yes, to cheer, I think they cheer were, other people up as well. Yes, I think they were they were quite intrigued by the mixture of sort of 1960s stuff, whether it was I don't know, 
the Rolling Stones and things like that. I think it was, uh, you can't always get what you want, probably, from the Rolling Stones. You can always get what you want, that sort of thing. Um, but also some quite modern stuff, so I think they probably found that quite funny that it was mixed because it the, the kids would have put on stuff that they liked, yeah. And have you seen photos of you during this time? Does that bring back odd memories? Uh, it doesn't bring back memories, but they're quite disturbing because you're looking at yourself as you don't remember or know yourself. So I've seen one photo and several bits of film. It's quite quite worrying to look at it because I do look like a cadaver. I mean, I'm a white-skinned person, but I look like someone completely drained of life. Also, I'm more or less shaven. So I'm looking like, like I mean, I, I, I did do a, a, some of a medical course, so I have seen a cadaver and I have seen two of my family dead so I kind of know what a dead body looks like and so I look at these images and I do look like a dead person and so that's quite disturbing in its own way because it's like a, a foretelling um, so you, I am sort of looking at myself in the last chapter and um, it's a bit like I've, I've written a poem just this week about the idea of, you know, how when you read a book and you get to chapter four and then you cheat and you read the last chapter. <laughs> well, there is a way in which these images are a bit like cheating and looking at the last chapter, even though I'm only on chapter, well, I don't know which chapter I am on. But anyway, it does feel a bit as if I've read ahead <laughs> yeah. um, to catch a glimpse. So, um, yeah, and it, it, I won't say it's disturbing, but it's it's a bit kind of, intriguing i mean the bit you read from katie where emma was very protective well that's because she didn't want them to film me but they did film me anyway and then asked our permission afterwards so she feels quite cross about that that they secretly did film me um, and then showed us the footage and then we said mm, yeah okay you can use that but emma was worried that the pictures of me would be mm. i think somehow or other would be undignified or would show me in ways that I wouldn't necessarily want to be shown in public. As it happens, I don't mind that. Mm. But she couldn't predict that, and so she was quite rightly protecting me. But um, <laughs> they went ahead and filmed it anyway. God. That's, that's filmos. They're like that. And did you experience, would you use that label, post-traumatic stress disorder, or did you have a kind of getting home and then it all caught up with you or or for Emma it, what she went through caught up with her is there a sort of delayed emotional reaction that happens people tell me that my emotional state either should be or actually is a form of post-traumatic stress disorder I don't want to really give it that name because I've heard say people have been in the military uh, I've known, but I mean, don't forget, I was born in 46. So a lot of the people, a lot of the adults that I knew had been in the Second or even in the First World War. I mean, I was in hospital in 1963. And there was a guy in the corner of the ward who fought at um, Mons and I don't know, Passchendaele and things. So, you know, I have been surrounded, not surrounded is the wrong word, but have often met people when I was a kid and in uh, later, uh, people who really been in Terrible, terrible situations. Uh, Emma's grandfather, I remember, whenever I went over there, he would revert quickly to talking about a scene that he had witnessed in the Second World War. So I, I sort of have a sense of how 
how it works, the kind of constant reverting to the moment and being frightened and waking up in the middle of the night and shaking and sweats and so on. And I can't honestly say that it's as bad as that. What I've described is a, to myself is what I call the lonely corridor syndrome. So the lonely corridor syndrome takes me back to moments where I felt very isolated and um, a little bit of chafing between me and nurses in ways that I don't need to go into and feeling very, very far away from home, this, this huge gulf between lying in bed and home, even though home's only about a mile and a half, if that, from the hospital. But it feels like an uncrossable gap. And then the hospitals are full of corridors and when you're wheeled down these corridors, you know you're going somewhere which is full of indecision and uh, expectations and uh, misgivings. So you're not quite sure what's going to happen to you. So I have what I call the lonely corridor syndrome, where I think of lonely corridors and it reminds me of sort of being put out of class because I was a naughty boy and standing alone in the corridor, dreading that maybe the deputy head would come past and I'd be sent to the head study and whacked or something. So I've got these kind of notions of lonely corridors. I can remember waiting for my mum who had cancer and was standing in an empty corridor mm. waiting for her. So I have this image that, and I have this idea that these corridors connect up so I can sit here and be in a corridor that takes me back to the hospital with its corridors or to these corridors from my childhood. I think Freud would call it, if I remember, it's either called condensation or I think some people call it over-determination. That's to say where you bring together lots of different memories and make them into one and focus it on something that really is, that as it almost as it were, doesn't deserve that kind of preoccupation. Um, so yeah, there's nothing wrong with the corridor after all, but um, I sort of bring it to bear on this thing of the corridor and so I have this idea of these corridors all connecting into one long corridor. There's another corridor of when I had a car accident when I was 17. And I remember the, the nurse taking me, the charge nurse taking me out into the corridor and I was in a wheelchair and he said, stand up, Michael, and walk. And I couldn't. And I remember him being sort of slightly irritated that I couldn't walk. I mean, I had been in a sling for 10 weeks, so, you know, it's a bit, Anyway, I remember him just saying walk and I could just see this great long corridor ahead of me and I couldn't do it. Um, so they, they connect up all these different corridors into one corridor. Now, you might say this is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's certainly a mild form of it because you can hear it's quite obsessive. I think there's another word the Freudians use, cathexis, which means where you become over-preoccupied about one thing. I might just be sitting there and suddenly the the corridor thing will happen. Um, and I'd, I'm not, I have to be honest, I'm not overly disturbed by it, particularly as I have described it. And there is a way in which, as I often do, I find it quite absurd or even funny. I mean, you know, the idea of standing outside the geography room because Mr. Murray has sent me out yet again. Um, oh, right, that's all, enough. That's enough, other, Rosen. And then all that's, the other teachers who pass have a go as well. Exactly. Right, that's, that's enough. <laughs> I had enough, Rosen. Get out. Yes, that's right. What one teacher say? Yeah, are you all right? They say, yes. Are you all right? Have you? <laughs> as if somewhere I'd kind of got lost, aged 15, you know, why would <laughs> I be lost? You know. Anyway, if anybody's hearing this who 
has genuinely suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, then I hope they don't think I'm minimising what they are. And also I'm very clear that it isn't as traumatic as me kind of waking up and gibbering and, and sweating and so on, because I'm not. But I can see it has analogies with it. It sounds like you found a lot of ways as well to not ruminate and sort of get stuck in the corridors. <laughs> <laughs> if you're finding your one joyful thing at least a day, there are ways yes. countering, yes. countering. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking me through all of that. Very, very last question. Do you remember writing page 163? Oh, yes, yes. I mean... The nice thing about writing is it, it is a way of remembering. Mm. People sometimes forget that writing, I mean, it comes to most of us quite naturally now because we've learnt it and we do it um, and we read things and we forget that writing was originally a way of remembering. So I think some of the first writing that we can figure out is really something quite banal. It's um, records of flower bags, I think, in ancient Sumeria and I think we can more or less assume is that there were so many flower bags, it was rather difficult to remember them all. But if you mark them down on a wet clay tablet, which then sets, then you've remembered how many flower bags you've sold or bought or exchanged that day. So it gives you a record and then you don't have to remember it because you can go to your clay tablet and remember. Well, in a way, I think that writing is almost the same that what you do is you write it down. It, it is a form of fixing in the wet clay. You fix the memory. It means you don't have to, if you don't want to, make an effort to remember that thing exactly because you can flip back the pages or use your folders on your, inter, uh, on your computer mm. and you find it again. But you may also remember the process of writing. Now, you may remember that as you walk about or you may remember the process when you go back to the wet clay tablet um, and you, you go look back at the tablet and go, oh, yeah, no, I remember writing that. So actually, as I walk about, I do often think of the things I wrote in many different kinds of love. I do think, oh, yeah, because there's something quite reassuring that you were able to fix a memory. So I know it sounds terribly self-congratulatory. It's not saying I didn't I write brilliantly. It's no, <laughs> it's simpler than that. It's I wrote it down. Mm -hmm. And that's got a satisfaction in itself. Yes, I, I think about that quite often, that I wrote about that moment that Hugh told me about, Hugh Montgomery, and that it connected with what Emma did. So every time I meet Hugh or talk to Hugh, and we do, I say, occasionally, and we do write to each other and so on, is I quite often think of him as the the bloke who had that interchange with Emma that enabled me to come alive again and I also think of this thing where which he says on the film we didn't know if Michael would be brain dead or not <laughs> which he never he's never told me directly that even though I had a great long debrief with him he didn't actually ever quite put it that way so when I saw the film for the first time I kind of burst out laughing and sort of said to the said to him as it were on the telly going well you didn't tell me that at the time Hugh um, so all that comes to me and I do remember this bit of writing down the page I sometimes talk to my students about the idea that all stories have elbows in them. They're kind of crux moments where a key moment in the story and you go round the corner, round the elbow to the next bit. 
And these are, these are crucial. And all people who make films, write stories or poems, you know your crux moment and you engineer it or whatever. And if there are too many, then the audience get bored. And if, and if there mm. isn't one, then again, the audience kind of says, well, what was the point? So this has become a crux moment in my life, hasn't it? I mean, mm. I was ill, I was unconscious, and then I became conscious. This is the moment that enabled me to become conscious. So, of course, I often ponder it and think about what might have happened otherwise. You know, I do the sliding doors thing. You know, what would have happened if that hadn't happened or what if it hadn't worked? Would I still be in a coma? What would life be like for my family right now? What would they be doing if I was sitting up the road and, you know, and every now and then they came in and prodded me and poked me and played another Rolling Stones track to me? Try try um, uh, Route 66. I like that one. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, go down the St. Louis, down the museum. Yeah, why not? Try that one. That might work. Or Bo Diddley, you know. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a good tape production produced by me, Abby Hollick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. <laughs> <laughs>